to Blazing History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. Facebook.com slash Blazing Shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter. And go check out my brand new website, BlazingShows.com. Hope you're doing well as we continue our Women's History Series in March. And this time, we pay tribute to two political women, both with ties to the Bill Clinton administration. Here's a tribute I did in September when the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Ruth Bader was born on March 15, 1933 in Brooklyn. Her father, Nate, was a Jewish emigrant from the Russian Empire. Her mother, Celia, was born in New York City to Austrian Jewish parents. Tragedy was part of Ruth's childhood. Celia lost her battle with cancer a day before Ruth graduated from James Madison High School in 1950. Ruth went to Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, where she studied government. While at Cornell, she met Martin D. Ginsburg, a.k.a. Marty, on a blind date. She was just 17 years old. What made Marty so just overwhelmingly attractive to me is that he cared that I had a brain. Ruth graduated from Cornell in 1954 with a B.A. in government. She was the highest-ranking female in her graduating class. A month after she graduated, Bader and Ginsburg were married. They moved to Oklahoma, where Marty was stationed in the Army. Ruth was fired from her first job with the Social Security Administration because she was pregnant with her first child, Jane, born in 1955. Ruth attended Harvard Law School in 1956. Two years later, she transferred to Columbia when Marty got a job in New York City. Ruth became the first woman to be on two major law reviews, Harvard and Columbia. She received her law degree from Columbia in 1959, tied for first in her class. Early on in her legal career, Ruth had a hard time getting a job. At that time, state laws said women could be treated worse than men. I had three strikes against me. One, I was Jewish. Two, I was a woman. But the killer was I was the mother of a four-year-old child. Despite her academic success, she got a job as a typist. Her first break came in 1960, becoming a clerk for the Southern District Court of New York. One of her Columbia professors threatened the judge to never recommend another Columbia student if Ruth wasn't given the opportunity. She held the position for a couple of years, and in 1963, Ruth became a professor at Rutgers Law School. She was paid less because in the eyes of the school, Marty had a really good job that paid well. She actually had to hide her second pregnancy out of fear of losing her job. Her son James was born in 1965. She was tenured at Rutgers in 1969, leaving the school three years later. Ruth was a tireless advocate for human rights, especially for women. In 1970, she founded the Women's Rights Law Reporter, the first journal specifically for women lawyers. Two years later, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. She argued six gender discrimination cases, losing just one. The words of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, nor shall any state deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. 
Well, that word, any person, covers women as well as men. And the Supreme Court woke up to that reality in 1971. She didn't ask the courts to end gender discrimination all at once. Instead, she took a very calculated approach. At times, choosing male plaintiffs to show gender discrimination goes both ways. In one case, she represented a man whose wife died in childbirth. At the time, the law said only widows were entitled to survivor's benefits from Social Security. The wife, in this case, was also the breadwinner for the family. This absolute exclusion, based on gender per se, operates to the disadvantage of female workers, their surviving spouses, and their children. Ruth continued litigating and advocating against gender discrimination in the lower courts, earning her a spot on the federal bench in 1980. Ruth was viewed as a moderate and cautious juror. She was on the Federal Court of Appeals until being elevated to the Supreme Court on August 9, 1993. President Bill Clinton nominated her to the court because of her advocacy and moderate approach. Then Chief Justice William Rehnquist did the swearing in. Justice Ginsburg, will you raise your right hand and repeat after me? I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do solemnly swear. I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. So help me God. This was a historical appointment because Ruth became the second woman to serve on the bench. Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed by President Ronald Reagan. Ginsburg also became the first Jewish woman subsequently serving as the longest-serving Jewish justice. In 2006, O'Connor retired from the Supreme Court. Ginsburg became more liberal and aggressive with her opinions, becoming the notorious RBG. In an interview with PBS NewsHour, she joked, the only common thread between the notorious RBG and the notorious B.I.G., they were both born in Brooklyn. In her 27 years on the Supreme Court, RBG had five battles with cancer. She didn't miss a single day of court until 2019 because of surgery dealing with lung cancer. Marty, the love of her life for nearly 60 years, died from cancer in 2010. As Ruth was packing things from the hospital so Marty could die at home, she found this note from him. My dearest Ruth, I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell. The time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. 
I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. The day after Marty died, she was there on the bench because that's what he would have wanted. RBG had a reputation for being a workaholic. In May of 2020, RBG participated in oral arguments from a hospital bed. On September 18, 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died from complications of pancreatic cancer. She was 87 years old. I, I do think that I was born on, under a very bright star because you think of, of my life. I got out of law school. I have top grades. No law firm in the city of New York will hire me. I end up teaching. As I said before, they, they gave me time to devote to the movement for evening out the rights of women and men. I was not nominated to a vacancy on the Second Circuit. Instead, I was nominated to a vacancy on the D.C. Circuit. Much better place for me to be because the D.C. Circuit decides a lot of very important questions involving um, what's going on in our government. So I'll tell you what Justice O'Connor once said to me. She said, suppose we had been we had come of age at a time when women lawyers were welcome at the bar. You know what? Today we would be retired partners from some large law firm. But because that was, route was not open to us, we had to find another way, and we both end up on the United States Supreme, Supreme Court. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now we hear from the first female attorney general of the U.S., Janet Reno. In an interview she did from January of 2001, courtesy of PBS NewsHour with the late Jim Lair. Attorney General, welcome. Thank you, Jim. I'm glad to be here. How do you feel about the job you did as attorney general of the United States? I'll let other people assess it. I just try to do my best and uh, make the best judgments I can. But do you feel that you did your, you did your best? You leave here... Uh, there are days where I thought, if I could have just spent a little bit more time on a certain issue, I might have handled it differently. But I think I've worked with some wonderful people, tried my best, and I feel comfortable. You leave here with your head high? Yes, sir. Uh, what, uh, what do you feel the best about? that I encourage the people in the Department of Justice who are wonderful lawyers, wonderful agents, and wonderful support staff to be their best. And they are really wonderfully dedicated public servants. They care, they want to make a difference, and they have made a difference. Did you expect the professional staff to be as good as they turned out to be? No, I didn't. What did you think it would be like? I wasn't sure, but I have been surrounded by some of the smartest, brightest, most caring lawyers, by agents who are willing to risk their lives for others, 
by support staff that are just willing to work as hard as they can. And one of my missions, both in these two days and for the rest of my life, is to let the American people know how many dedicated men and women work with them and for them in the Department of Justice. What was your darkest day, or what was your darkest time during well, these eight years? Well, you were there. I yeah. was, it was Waco. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you spent uh, a lot of time thinking about that. What went wrong? One, it's obvious what went wrong, mm -hmm. but um, one will never know what the right answer was because one doesn't know what Karish would have done two weeks later without any provocation. So we just have to learn, and one of the things that I think it's important to, to do is to make sure that the FBI, when it, rather than inheriting situations, designs the initiative from the beginning. You uh, kind of burst out on the public scene as a result of Waco, as a result of your saying, I was responsible, I made the decision, and I will live with it. Is that how you feel about it now, too? I sure do. Yeah. You do bear it, you do feel you were responsible. I made the decision. Yeah. And did you make the decision, do you think you made the wrong decision? I'll never know. It was clearly, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't do it. But I don't know whether I could have avoided it down the line. There are those that have reviewed this case in depth and said he could have done the same thing two weeks later with people mm -hmm. not bothering him at all. Another uh, case, a high visibility case, more recent, was the Ilion Gonzalez uh, matter where you uh, ordered him taken by force. Any second thoughts about that? No. Why not? Because we tried our best for the longest time to negotiate a peaceful resolution of the matter. And at each step, we were thwarted by those that said, no, we will not turn the boy over to his father. Uh, finally, I went down and tried my best, only to be told via television after I had left that if you want the boy, you're going to have to take him by force. So when you look back on that, you don't look back with any regrets at all about at least your decision-making, right? No, I don't. Yeah. Now, Republicans have been all over you for not having asked for an independent counsel investigation of the fundraising activities of President Clinton and Vice President Gore. Do you have any second thoughts about that? No, I've carefully reviewed all of those cases. I reviewed the facts and the law myself. I participated in drafting the reasons, setting forth why, in each instance, the evidence wasn't specific and credible. Uh, and I feel very comfortable with those decisions. Were you influenced at all in those decisions by the fact that you are a Democrat and you worked for President Clinton? The statute doesn't really refer to, to that at the, as the triggering mm -hmm. stage. And what you have to do at the triggering stage is see whether there's specific and credible information uh, that triggers the application. And whether whoever you are, it doesn't make any difference. I followed the statute. And so that was totally irrelevant to you. It was not part of your decision-making, even in an unconscious way, when you look back on it. Well, it's part of the decision-making because by being in the president's cabinet, the statute applies, but it applies only if it is triggered. And the triggering was based on the evidence in the law, not based on who was a Democrat and who mm -hmm. wasn't. So if a Republican or anybody else uh, believes that you 
made those decisions to protect President Clinton and Vice President Gore, what would you say to them? Anybody that's thought that I tried to protect the President has forgotten that I asked for the expansion of the Monica Lewinsky matter. Is that something about which you have any regrets? I don't look at it in terms of regrets. I look at it what I thought I had to do under the law and I felt that I did the right thing. What did you uh, finally conclude about the total nature of the Kenneth Starr investigation of President Clinton? How do you feel about that whole exercise? It's still pending. The independent counsel who inherited the investigation is still handling the matter so it would be inappropriate for me to comment. What was your, how would you describe the, your working relationship with President Clinton? Did you have one? Did you have an ongoing yes. relationship? I think he's one of the smartest men I ever met. Uh, I think he has a tremendous knowledge of government. And I've never seen anybody able to grasp so many different issues with such a sense of how does it affect people. It was just a, a real pleasure to talk about constitutional issues with him, to talk about legal issues, to talk about how you build partnerships with state and local governments. And uh, he, he was really a pleasure to, to watch in action. Some of the uh, comments being written in your, at the end of the administration and your, your leaving have said that you are probably the most independent attorney general that there has ever been. Somebody who functioned independent from the president as, re as distinguished from attorney generals in the past who were, ex who were close friends of the president, were there kind of as the president's lawyer. Is that a correct assessment? I think I was, I think the facts and circumstances were such that I was more independent. Did you come in to be independent or it just happened? I came in to try to do it the right way, where it was a law enforcement issue that didn't have national security implications to it, then the president really shouldn't be involved in terms of dictating what the investigation should, what course it should take. Um, but other than that, I wanted to do everything I could to be a team player in the cabinet. And I think on so many different issues, we were able to do that. And it has produced some good results. Did you see your role to be that as a, uh, well, not only as a team player, but as a person to carry out the wishes and the policies of the president? I think clearly where you have a situation in which the Solicitor General tells me, I cannot in good faith argue a certain legal position. And if the president told us to argue that position, we would have to tell him, no, we can't do that, Mr. President. But if you have a situation where people within the department or the Solicitor General's office argue one side and the other, and there's, say, a split by some of the best lawyers in the office, the president wants to go one way as a matter of policy, say, for example, on the tithing case in which the issue was whether the bankruptcy trustee could recover a tithe paid during the time of the debtor was insolvent. A tithe paid to a church, could that be recovered? We concluded that the bankruptcy trustee could not recover it. The president said he, because of his strong feelings concerning religious freedom, preferred that we take the other policy tact. And I think he has the responsibility and the right to call the policy shots. And you said fine. You backed off mm -hmm. and did it uh, the way he wanted. But that, that was not your attitude when it came to uh, 
any kind of law enforcement decision, is that correct? Unless there were national security implications in there because he is responsible for the foreign policy of the United States and the faithful execution of the laws, I think it was important that he be involved to the extent necessary to execu execute those functions. Like say Waco, Ileon Gonzalez, those kinds of really tough decisions that, that you made. What was the relationship there in terms of your consulting or... or I or talked to him and we talked to him, either I or Webb Hubble, the person who had been at the Department of Justice from the beginning, were in touch with the White House to let them know that this was going down. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I have said at congressional hearings, it was not the president's responsibility to run a law enforcement operation and you wouldn't want the president running a law enforcement operation. It was ours. The person who's been nominated to take your place, John Ashcroft, uh, has said that uh, he can put aside his own personal views and enforce laws with which he has serious disagreement. Did you have to do that as your, during your eight years? I was personally opposed to the death penalty and yet I think I've probably asked for the death penalty more than most people in the United States. Was that difficult for you to do? Um, I had concluded when I was the prosecutor that I would vote against the death penalty if I were in the legislature, but that I could ask for it when I was satisfied as to, to guilt and to the proper application of the penalty. So if, uh, if you're, was there, were there any other examples where you had a serious problem with a, a law that you had to I enforce in any kind of? I can't think of any. Yeah. When, Ashcroft, when the Ashcroft nomination was uh, announced, he and President-elect Bush used the word integrity many, many times and they, they essentially said that there needs to be a return of integrity to the Attorney General's office and there was, it was widely interpreted as a real whack at you. Did you see it that way? I just understand that in those times people are saying things that they might come to think a little bit differently about if they were there at the scene knowing exactly what was going on. But as far as you're concerned, uh, the integrity uh, the integrity matter is not a problem for you. In other words, you don't have any, you, uh, somebody says you had an integrity problem, forget it, huh? From your point of view? If somebody thinks I have an integrity problem, then the honest thing to do is to tell me what they think it is and let me address it. Uh, but I think what you see in a lot of these political situations is people talking about issues that they haven't really had a chance to grapple with themselves and have not read the documents that might be the subject matter. And it's important before people comment that they understand just what the issues are, what the facts are, and how the law applies. How do you feel about John Ashcroft replacing you? I don't know him, and I haven't had a chance to watch the hearing, so uh, I know we disagree on a number of matters. I uh, want, if he's confirmed, I want to make sure that there's a smooth transition, that it's done carefully and professionally, and as he would like it. Are you concerned at all that he might come in and change some uh, major decisions of yours or policies of yours? It would be his right. So it's not a problem for you? Um, my earnest hope is that what we started in terms of building partnerships with communities across America will continue. That we will continue our efforts to reduce crime and to reduce violence, that we won't become complacent. We've initiated programs 
for reentry of offenders since some five to six hundred thousand offenders will come out of prison each year for the next three or four years. We want to have positive alternatives for them when they come back to, to the community so that they won't end up committing further crime. We want to continue the efforts against domestic violence and spread the drug courts and develop real effective means of providing treatment for drug abusers without having to have them arrested. Uh, we want to, to make sure that, and I think everybody should want to make sure that we have the cyber tools necessary to investigate cyber crime and to be prepared to defend against it and to bring people to justice who commit it. There's so much to be done and so much that I pointed out the other day at a ceremony we had at the Department of Justice. My predecessors, Attorneys General Barr and Thornburg, were there, and I pointed out that party, the, the institution that we know as the Department of Justice transcends party because we're building on the weed and seed program that Bill Barr announced in Miami one day in, in August of 92, and we're building on an international network that Dick Thornburg started. And he is responsible, amongst with many others, for the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. There are so many things that we can do and are doing to work together to carry forward policies of both parties that I hope that will happen again. Now, what, what about Janet Reno? You're going to, I, I understand you're going to uh, go back to Florida, take, uh, sit on a porch for a week or so, and then drive across the country in your red pickup, is that right? I would like to to go and explore and see this country. I've had so many opportunities to see it from the air, to see it briefly upon visiting a city or a community. And I'd like to be able to climb the mountains that I wished I could climb at the time, but I had to get back to Washington. I'd like to visit with people who are so interesting and so, there's so many wonderful people out there that I'd love to have the chance to talk to for a longer time. In a public way, are we going to hear from Janarino again? Are you going to continue to be involved in issues, or is this it? No, I, till the day I die, or till the day I can't think I, anymore, I want to be involved in the issues that I care about, how we make the law real for all people, how we give people access to the law, how we give children an opportunity for a strong and positive future. I'm interested in elder justice and what we can do about elder abuse and neglect. I'm vitally interested in cybercrime and in preparing law enforcement for a time when crime is international in its origins and its consequences. There's so much to do, and I want to continue those efforts. Well, good luck to you, and thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you. Next week, we'll talk about women athletes who have made an impact in their sports and the world. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, blazing through history one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash blazinshows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at blazinshows. Or email me blazinshows at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website blazinshows.com. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself and we'll talk again next week. On Blaze in History, I'm Blaze Bryant.